Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And today's episode, Blackbeard's true story, unraveling the myth. And what a myth. Over 300 years have passed since the notorious pirate Blackbeard exploded onto the front pages of history. And dozens, if not hundreds, of writers and historians have been repeating stories of Blackbeard which, although entertaining, are largely false. Most of us have come to believe that his name was Teach, and that he was born in England. And he was a bloodthirsty murderer, was he not? And he buried treasure from Florida to New Hampshire, did he not? You might recall an episode we did on Blackbeard back in 2016, which I opened up with a retelling of author Kevin Duffus's search for Blackbeard's mythical sister Susanna's gravestone in Bath, North Carolina, in his book, The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate. Kevin Duffus is a leading authority on Blackbeard and all things concerning Blackbeard, having uncovered a treasure trove of documentation regarding the life, death, actions, finding of court records, and deeds of Blackbeard and his crew. And the real story differs quite a bit from what most people have been told. You're in for some real eye-opening discussion as we begin to unravel the myth that has grown up around the pirate Blackbeard and his crew. Kevin Duffus, it's great to have you with us today. I'm hoping you can share some of your background and the reason you've spent decades uncovering the real story of Blackbeard. Thank you, John. I'm extremely excited to, to have been invited to participate in your podcast, A Thousand and One Heroes, and I am also thrilled to be able to spend time with you, uh, someone who I know shares my passion in history and also in the pirate Blackbeard. One of the great advantages that I have over the many other uh, writers and authors and historians who have written about Blackbeard uh, is that I have a very close knowledge of the very places where Blackbeard spent his last couple of years. I, I, um, I'm very familiar with the waters of, of the Pamlico River and Pamlico Sound and Ocracoke and, and even uh, I've even sailed in Blackbeard's wake, so to speak, in the Windward Islands, not far from where he captured the ship that became the Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, all the way through the Virgin Islands. And I, I have a, uh, an intimate knowledge of, of, of maritime practices and also uh, Blackbeard's haunts, if you will, in uh, the towns of Bath and Ogrecoke Island. So that gives me a bit of an advantage. Many of the other authors who've written about Blackbeard simply repeat what other uh, historians and authors have written over the last uh, 300 years about the pirate. Uh, I am very particular about uh, going back to the primary sources, uh, the original documents, and trying to get as close to the story as possible. Now, now, as far as my background goes, I was, when I grew up, and I was an Air Force brat. I was the son of a D-Day pilot who, after World War II, joined the Air Force. And uh, like all Air Force families, we moved all over the country and the world. 
every year or two years. And my father's last assignment was to be commander of the ROTC detachment at East Carolina University, which landed us in Greenville in eastern North Carolina in the late 1960s. And when we arrived there, I had just not too long before, the year before, had seen the uh, the very popular Disney movie Blackbeard's Ghost starring Peter Ustinoff and Dean Jones and <laughs> Suzanne Plachette. And uh, that was my first uh, introduction to the pirate known as Blackbeard. Um, until that movie came along, I had not heard of him. So when we moved to Greenville and I started uh, spending a little bit of time in the county library there, I found a couple of books about pirates in eastern North Carolina. One, one book in particular was a history of the county that had been published back in 1911. And the, the second chapter of that book was devoted to Blackbeard the Pirate. And the author of that book described the times that Blackbeard would, in between his piratical cruises, would supposedly sail up the, the river to visit his sister, who lived on the banks of uh, the river called the Tar River, which today is, uh, the, that area is about halfway between the town of Greenville and the town of Washington on the Pamlico River. And according to the author of the book, his sister's name was Susanna. And he even said that not long uh, before this book was published, that Susanna's grave was still visible, the headstone was, and that uh, treasure seekers had from time to time visited her, her grave and had dug holes digging for Blackbeard's treasure, as if he would have buried his treasure next <laughs> to the grave of his sister. But uh, So this was one of the little um, things that really uh, captured my imagination as a, as a teenager. I also had read that uh, Blackbeard's last battle occurred off the island of Ocracoke, so I looked at a map and saw that Ocracoke was, was not too terribly far from Greenville. And I asked my dad if I could uh, borrow the keys to the family car so I could drive out there. I wanted to visit the place where Blackbeard was killed. And, of course, he uh, didn't think I had enough uh, experience behind the wheel to uh, to drive that far. And so he said, no, I can't let you do that. And I eventually convinced him to let me ride my bicycle out there. <laughs> it was a one-day trip in a one-day trip in a car, and it was a three-day trip on a bicycle. <laughs> and but he—that's uh, how determined I was to visit this place where Blackbeard once walked. And I had to recruit uh, two unwitting high school friends to to go with me on their bicycles. And but we—that's what we did. We we rode to Ocracoke Island, and um, I'll never forget. We rode into the little village there. This is now. 1970, uh, 1971, and so it was a lot less developed than it is now, but we rode up to the community store there on the harbor, and there were three uh, elderly gentlemen sitting in rocking chairs, and I went up and said, now I had just arrived here on my bicycle after three days of riding, and I had seen the movie Blackbeard's Ghost, and I knew that Blackbeard in the movie was had built a hotel on this a rocky cliff a hundred feet above the bay where <laughs> where his last battle took place and I asked them if they'd tell me where I could find that 100 foot high rocky cliff and they both uh, smiled and then just bust that out laughing and then one of them with his high tide uh, ochre coke brogue said uh, son you come to the wrong place he said the highest place on this island is only about eight feet and uh, <laughs> so that was that was my that was my introduction, my, my uh, uh, tutorial on uh, the fact that you don't, you shouldn't try to learn history by watching Hollywood movies. And so, <laughs> it's a good example. Um, For the sake of our so, listeners, uh, uh, Ocracoke is a, is, a, is a tiny island uh, south of Hatteras uh, on the outer banks of North Carolina. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an escape for a lot of people. Uh, from inland, from uh, in cities like Roanoke, and then northward cities like Virginia Beach. And uh, we in Virginia Beach escaped to the Outer Banks and Ocracoke when we're trying to get away from our tourist season up here. So, uh, but Ocracoke every year invites Kevin to lecture at their uh, Blackbeard Festival. So he's become uh, quite a hit uh, down there. Is that right? 
Well, that's true, and that actually that uh, that festival uh, has been going on now for I think 13, 13, 14 years, and it and it, it is because of me because I was um, uh, I was instrumental in getting that started. I uh, in two thousand seven, I was uh, there on the very anniversary on November twenty second, uh, which would be the anniversary of the Battle of Ocracoke, and I was there taking photographs for my book which I was still working on and writing which was not published until the following year and it occurred to me that uh, Ocracoke holds an annual memorial service for four British sailors who mm-hmm. uh, died in World War II and I thought well why why wouldn't shouldn't we have a memorial service for the pirates and the Royal Navy sailors who perished in that very famous battle so the following year uh, I recruited uh, 60 pirate reenactors from a group called Blackbeard's Crew, which is is based there in the Tidewater, Virginia area, and we went down and held a very solemn memorial service, and uh, that has since grown into a multi-day pirate festival, which always concludes with the memorial service. But uh, I want to get back to Susanna, Blackbeard's mythical sister, because. Um, after riding my bicycle out there and, and getting a taste of Blackbeard history out there, I decided I wanted to find his sister's grave. And uh, after a, a great effort, and I had to do a little bit of research to figure out where located where along the Tar River that might have been. And it was hidden in a, in a, a very wooded area that was uh, thick with uh, briars, and there were biting flies buzzing around my head. But I eventually... Uh, found her grave, or her, her, her sandstone headstone, which even to this day has survived. Wow. And as I looked at the inscription on the headstone, I sort of had a sinking, the same kind of sinking feeling I had when I realized that there wasn't a hundred foot high cliff at Ocracoke. I saw, noticed that she uh, was born 37 years after Blackbeard was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I realized that this couldn't, even though the name was correct, and this was the very headstone that was mentioned in that book in 1911, I realized that this uh, woman could not have possibly have been his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, and in the book, I describe how uh, in searching for her grave, I, I tripped and fell and uh, had inadvertently stepped in this, this hole that went down into the ground, and I... Um, was able to make the hole a little bit larger so I could stick a flashlight down. I could see a floor, and eventually I was able to put my head down in there, and I had <laughs> stuck my stuck my head in uh, someone else's grave. It was a it was a crypt that one end corner had had caved in, and so I knew then that I was in the middle of a much larger cemetery. There were probably at least 18 other graves that did not have headstones, but the the point to remember is that at that moment, I, and ever since, for almost 40 years, I had uh, felt like I was uh, either haunted by whoever that was whose grave I stuck my head in, mm-hmm. or that I had somehow uh, taken on a responsibility or uh, a, a debt of, or an obligation of some sort. I, I could never forget that moment, and I could never stop wondering both who that whose grave that was but also who was Susanna White and why did this author in 1911 think that she was somehow related to Blackbeard and um, I'm happy to say that after years of research and many many visits to archives and courthouses in the middle of writing the book I was able to discover and prove the identity of Susanna White and indeed she did have a a very distant connection to the pirate Blackbeard. Not that he, she was his sister, and she was not even related to him, but she was, in fact, the granddaughter of one of his crew members. So that's another story hopefully we'll get to. But that's, that's kind of the background of how I, I got into this. Many years later, I, I became a, an avid sailor, and I had a, a sailboat that I kept docked in the little uh, village of Bath, which was uh, Blackbeard's sort of headquarters in his last uh, couple of years. Explain for a moment why Bath was so important uh, back in that time, in the early 1700s. Well, uh, so the, the cop North Carolina, which at one time was, was united with South Carolina, it was simply called Carolina, 
and so this was the northern colony. Um, most of the of the early population of North Carolina actually came from Virginia, and they came by land. They came across the border and began to settle along the Albemarle Sound, and and then eventually uh, settlers uh, began to uh, work their way up the uh, the Pamlico River. One reason for that is that the the inlet that cut through the Outer Banks and provided access to the ocean from the Albemarle Sound. This was Roanoke Inlet, and this is very a, a very famous inlet because it dated back to the Walter Raleigh expeditions. But it began to uh, shoal up, become too shallow for major or large trading vessels. Only the the shallowest draft vessels were able to get through Roanoke Inlet. So the next deep water inlet was Ocracoke Inlet, and it just so happened that that uh, vessels coming in there could very easily go up the Pamlico River, and so it happened that uh, the town of Bath was settled uh, in the late 1690s. It actually was incorporated as a town in uh, 1705, and by 1715, it was um, became the principal port of entry for the colony of North Carolina. Which is incredible. So, North Carolina needed ocean commerce and trade, and that was the and that was the key. Well, it, it was. And, you know, so North Carolina, of course, has long been uh, said to be the uh, valley of humility between two mountains of conceit, which uh, which are uh, Virginia and South Carolina. But <laughs> so you have to you have to picture uh, Virginia, the, the development of Virginia and South Carolina uh, during this time, the late six, you know, uh, Charleston was. Uh, settled around 1673, and uh, of course Virginia much earlier with with Jamestown. Both and due to great, both due to great ports, easy access, right? Yes, deep deep water ports, easy access, and in between them, of course, you have North Carolina, which is uh, the the inland waters of North Carolina are defended by the the chain of barrier islands known as the Outer Banks, and there are. Uh, at the time, there were numerous uh, inlets that that breached the Outer Banks, but they were constantly uh, shifting and shoaling, and it made the development of North Carolina difficult. But so Bath was selected to by 1715 to be to become the capital of North Carolina. It was made a principal port of entry, and the various governors who had administered North Carolina prior to uh, 1716, all lived up on the Albemarle Sound. And so in 1716, the, the Lord's Proprietor's governor, who was uh, Charles Eden, relocated down to the town of Bath. He uh, established himself on a 400-acre plantation on the west bank of Bath Creek. Also, just to give your listeners a, a kind of a perspective, a geographic perspective, uh, Bath is about 52 miles in a straight line from Ocracoke Inlet, and it, it roughly compares, uh, just, you know, I think the distance may be a little bit less, but from from the English Channel up to London, so it, it was not that unusual to have a port city or town or, you know, capital uh, that far from the ocean, uh, and it did provide some defensive uh, opportunities as well, but Anyway, so town, uh, Bath was this uh, burgeoning little town, and that certainly played a part in the in the story of Blackbeard and his pirate crew. Yeah, there's a method to our uh, madness here, listeners. The reason the reason we're trying to outline why Bath was so important is that we're going to find out that uh, many of Blackbeard's closest uh, crew was from Bath. These guys uh, these guys took to the water uh, to make a living, and things were things were pretty tough in Bath during the days of piracy. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't unusual for these guys to seek income any way they could find it. Would that be a fair thing to say? Well, absolutely. I, you know, I, as you, you've, you've already alluded to the fact that his real history is quite different. I would say that his, his heritage and his motivations to become his pirate, uh, to become a pirate, uh, his actual treasure that he maybe brought into North Carolina, and even uh, his demise, the battle at Ocracoke, all of those things were very different than what the public has been led to believe. And and I actually believe that probably one of the most significant factors in trying to discover Blackbeard's true origins and his true identity, which I actually believe is 
the ultimate Blackbeard treasure, which is yet to be have been solved even even by me. But one of the most important clues is that the majority of his most trusted shipmates who had who had been arrested in North Carolina and taken to Virginia for trial were uh, the sons and in a few instances the slaves of of Bath and Pamlico River plantation owners. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I discovered, which is also uh, uh, very controversial but uh, important, is that the majority of those men were not executed, contrary to what so many other historians have claimed. We'll return to our interview with Kevin Duffus and today's story, Blackbeard, the man behind the myth, right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now back to our interview. I'd I'd like to start with uh, what's in a name, and let's drop a bomb on Teach. Right. Well, yes. Most people they say if you say you know uh, you mentioned Blackbeard, they go, oh, you mean Edward Teach. And the fact is, is that if you're a researcher and you start going through all of the original source, primary source documents, I mean, I've went to the British archives in London and spent uh, days and days there. Uh, handling all the, of these original letters, and something like ninety—I would say ninety-eight percent of the time, anyone actually spelled his name. It was spelled as T H A T C H, and and we would have Thatch. We would pronounce it today as Thatch, but that's not how they pronounced that word in seventeen eighteen. Right. Um, and and the and the fact is, there's the possibility that even Thatch was an alias. Um, well, you researched the name and, uh, Teach Thatch uh, in in London, did you not? And tried to find anything linking Blackbeard to uh, to the name Teach. And if I'm right, you couldn't find anything. Is that correct? Well, not in not in London, but in Bristol, England. And okay. of course, um, the you know the longstanding belief uh, has been that Blackbeard was a native of Bristol, England, right. and uh, and so. There was a family from the Gloucester, England area, which is kind of north of, of Bristol, whose uh, last name was T H A C H E, and you know it, it gets rather complicated though because I, first of all, there, that I did spend some time in Bristol and could find no credible, verifiable evidence whatsoever that Blackbeard was from Bristol. Now I did spend a day with a with a pirate tour guide who wanted to show me uh, the house that Blackbeard grew up in when he was a young boy and in the tunnels that he used to sneak through and but you know there's I, I kept asking him well can you show me you know written evidence primary source evidence that would confirm your the stories you're telling me and of course there there was none so. I believe that it's possible to deduce Blackbeard's origins and identity not by using uh, names and genealogy, but by examining very closely his behaviors and his travels. And yeah, you, his- can, yeah, you can expand on that now. I think that's hugely important. I think that's going to bring us to a common conclusion. You know, that why would, it, why would a guy from Bristol suddenly appear on the coast of North Carolina Make himself uh, extremely friendly uh, with a lot of guys who uh, who would be who would eventually become his crewmen, and all of a sudden develop strong ties with not only the governor but his tax collector Tobias Knight, and and all this happening from a guy who had no knowledge basically of the North Carolina coast. I think it defies common sense. Well, and it and it's also contrary to the rules of human nature. I mean, it's and of all the. Uh, history that I've ever studied. I mean, the one common denominator among all of the various civilizations on Earth going back 7,000 years, the one thing that connects all of us is is human nature and behavior. And uh, yes, I mean, that's exactly 
the point I'm trying to make is that but ultimately, in Blackbeard's final battle, when he was, it was a life or death event, he was surrounded by men from Bath, Bath, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They were his, his closest friends, his most trusted allies, and it, it is just absolutely beyond reason, and again, contrary to the rules of human nature, that he would have been uh, a relative stranger from Bristol, England, who would trust these men and like and and uh, the, those men wouldn't have trusted him and so when i say that you can it's possible to deduce blackbeard's at least his origins if not his identity again i say it's based on who he surrounded himself with but th- there's a there's another way to tell this story too and that you know blackbeard's piratical career lasted only about 23 months but he first shows up in the official records in December of 1716, and then, of course, he's killed in November of 1718. Here we have this pirate, and, and by the way, in December of 1716, he's identified as the captain of his own ship. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support the long-standing belief that Blackbeard was a subordinate of the pirate captain Benjamin Hornigold, and uh, I have been I have been at odds with two other pirate historians who I won't name, but are, are fairly well known, who both swear that Blackbeard had been, you know, a, a, a student of Benjamin Hornigold uh, and was never raised to any high command or whatever. Well, the fact is, is that the very first time he shows up in any record whatsoever, he's already the captain of his own ship. And it just so happens that on that ship are uh, the uh, many of these young men from Bath, yep. including including uh, uh, black men as well, who were uh, were slaves. But at the same time, one in particular was his very close friend and and trusted comrade Caesar. Yes. But I'm going to jump forward now to December December of 1717. In fact, December the date was. Uh, Tuesday, December 5th of 1717, and uh, just a couple of weeks before Blackbeard had captured the French ship formerly known as Concord, which Blackbeard renamed Queen Anne's Revenge, and now he's sailing across, he's sailing from east to west across the the leeward islands of the Caribbean, uh, headed kind of toward uh, Puerto Rico. And he encounters a, a sloop, uh, a merchant sloop. He stops that sloop and forces the captain of the sloop over to his vessel for about eight hours while Blackbeard's crew goes aboard. And they they basically, they, they took about, I think it was four or five cows and 36 pigs or hogs to move over to the Queen Anne's Revenge so that the pirates would have something to eat. And... In the course of the eight hours that the sloop captain was with Blackbeard, he informed Blackbeard that the King of England, George I, had just, they had just, his privy council had announced that they were sending out to the colonies uh, a proclamation pardoning, offering a pardon to pirates. And this was a pretty significant event in in the, the golden age of piracy in the history of that time. And so Henry Bostock was the captain. He informed Blackbeard of what the terms of the pardon were. And the terms were that you that pirates had to cease committing acts of piracy uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, in, in fact, in exactly one month, by January 5th of 1718, uh, Blackbeard and all the other pirates in the Caribbean were supposed to cease committing acts of piracy. And then they had until September 5th of that year to surrender themselves to a, a royal official, either a, a governor or a Royal Navy officer, captain. And, and so the reason why I'm telling you this is, so Blackbeard has got, he's got 400 men aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. They consume an enormous amount of food every day, three meals a day. They're burning through their provisions. That's a and, huge ship, um, like Queen Anne's Re- I, I didn't realize it was that big, 400 well, four, yeah, 400 men, well, they were packed in there pretty tight. And, I mean, it, what, probably the sleeping conditions weren't particularly comfortable on there, but the ship itself was, was about 100, a little bit less than 100 feet long. Um, oh, it was a slave ship, but, wasn't but it? It was. It yeah. was a slave ship. Now, according to the terms of the, of the king's 
pardon, Blackbeard should have surrendered to the nearest colonial official. So he had a choice of either turning around and sailing back to Antigua uh, to the east or sailing west to Jamaica, where there was a, a royal governor. And he could have gone in and surrendered to Jamaica, you know, not had any concern about, you know, being hunted down or killed. The only problem with that is, is that he uh, didn't own the Queen Anne's Revenge. He didn't have papers uh, indicating that he was the the master or owner of the Queen Anne's Revenge. So the first thing would have that would have happened in Jamaica is that they would have taken that ship from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, you know, they'd say, well, this doesn't belong to you. This, you know, so you're you've got to come ashore. And then once he's ashore, he could have been uh, classified as a vagrant seaman and then immediately forced aboard one of the king's warships, not as an officer, but as the lowest man uh, and and stuck in the forecastle and uh, just simply been, you know, a common sailor. Well, that that would have been quite a change of scenery for the captain of the Queen Anne's Revenge. Also, uh, Blackbeard and his inner circle of friends from Bath uh, were then at that time in the possession of 60 slaves. And so they would have also in Jamaica or anywhere else would have would have lost those slaves. So instead of following the terms of the king's pardon, Blackbeard and his crew continue to sail and pirate after January 5th. They have to continue pirating after January 5th because they have to keep everybody fed. But their point was to return to North Carolina. They in the process they sailed past four colonial governors any one of whom they could have surrendered to. But instead, they took a great risk by sailing uh, all the way to North Carolina, where he wrecked the Queen Anne's Revenge at the inlet that we now know is is Beaufort Inlet. And then in a smaller vessel, a sloop, he then sails to Bath with those 60 slaves and only 40 white crew members, many of whom, again, who have fathers who owned plantations along the Bath uh, Creek area in the, in the Pamlico. So that's one of my examples of why it's reasonable to, to dismiss the possibility that Blackbeard was from Bristol, England, or even Jamaica for that matter, because there's, there's been a, uh, a theory that's been floated about that has no basis in fact whatsoever that Blackbeard had been actually an Edward Thatch of Jamaica who owned a plantation and had a family there and was was an upstanding citizen of Jamaica. I asked the historian who came up with this theory, well, if that's true, why didn't Blackbeard ever sail to Jamaica? He never once set foot on Jamaica the entire time that we know of him as a pirate. And so I, I kind of dismissed that possibility. So there's lots of evidence that tie the man who was Blackbeard to the, to the Bath area. I'm going to return just for a moment back to the theory that's out there, the myth that's out there that he served under Hornigold, and that's how he came up in the pirating business. That doesn't explain for how he was first known to be the master of his own ship and had his own crew, again, the guys from Bath, okay? The boys. If he had served under Hornigold, he wouldn't have come up with the Bath boys. He would have been assigned a crew from a captured ship, most likely. That wasn't the course that that, uh, Blackbeard's history follows. So it doesn't make any sense that he came up under Hornigold. The next thing I wanted to, to ask you about was where did he set foot? You know, the myth out there is that he set foot in just about every place between New Hampshire and Florida. Uh, where where did his travels actually take him? How far north did he go, and how far south into the Caribbean did he go? Well, it's a it's a great question, and actually, I I uh, address that in my book by publishing a a fairly large map of of colonial America and the Caribbean that kind of traces his various piratical cruises. Uh, of course, I published that book in two thousand eight, and since then, I've kind of refined my knowledge of of his travels, so there may be um, some information in there that's not exactly correct, but I can say with absolute confidence that he never sailed, during the two years that he was a pirate, uh, never sailed any farther north than the Delaware Bay, while he actually went up the Delaware River to Philadelphia, and there's really no question that that is something that happened. He had made a couple of trips to Philadelphia or the the Delaware area during his two years as a pirate, 
But um, and actually, records I've I've seen uh, two documents that suggest that he either was a uh, a mate on a ship that sailed out of Philadelphia or a mate. This was prior to being a pirate, or a mate on a ship that sailed to Philadelphia. Supposedly, the people of Philadelphia knew him well. But I actually think in the summer of 1718, the reason why he went to Philadelphia was actually to uh, seek uh, uh, medical advice mm-hmm. for a, uh, a malady that he had that that uh, was called the French disease back then. Um, I think we can and, safely say uh, syphilis to our listeners here. Sure. Yeah. If you if you if you prefer that to the French disease, that's fine. Uh, and. Uh, it, it, by the way, the the French called it the Italian disease, but uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other. But um, but so you know, a number of years ago, the History Channel uh, had a, a documentary uh, about how Blackbeard supposedly buried his treasure uh, on the Isle of Shoals off the coast of New Hampshire, and uh, they devoted an entire hour to this program, and even went out to the Isle of Shoals looking for his treasure. I, I'm really fascinated by all the different treasure stories, uh, and also houses. Blackbeard, if you if you believe everything you read, Blackbeard had houses uh, uh, all up and down the East Coast, and even one back in London. But I don't know that uh, we know Blackbeard sailed as far south and east as uh, just north of Barbados, which is uh, between Barbados and Martinique, is which is where he captured. The French slaver Concord. He may or may not have gone as far south as Panama, uh, but uh, the records really don't support that whatsoever. I, I don't think he probably got any farther south along the Central American coast than Honduras. And again, it surprises people when I tell them that you know his his piratical career lasted 23 months. That's quite a shock. And by the way, he also was only known as Blackbeard by his uh, Nom de Guerre, which is a French war name, uh, he was only known as Blackbeard for 13 months. The very first document that has that we found that that states his uh, alias was one of these Philadelphia letters from uh, October of 1717. It was just a month before he captured the ship that became the Queen Anne's Revenge. But that described him as Edward Thatch, alias Blackbeard. And by the way, in uh, 1718, anytime he was referred to as Blackbeard, and even by historians for another hundred years, Blackbeard was always spelled as two distinct words, Black Beard. Kevin, I'd like to hear your theory of how the name Blackbeard became associated with the man whose real name is very possibly Edward Beard. Can you tell us that story? Is that a, is that a fair way to present it? That is a fair way to present it. I mean, and, and that's maybe the most controversial aspect of my uh, research and the conclusions that I draw in my book. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to say that I was not the first person to present the theory or the possibility that Blackbeard or Edward Thatch was, was in fact, or possibly Edward Beard. There were uh, three very respected and accomplished genealogist who spent a lot of time studying the uh, the deeds and records of what is now Beaufort County. Back in 1718, it was called Bath County. But they found uh, and were quite startled by discovering that one of the more prominent residents of Bath, dating between 1706 and 1711, was a mariner or sea captain whose name was Captain James Beard, B-E-A-R-D. This gentleman was uh, owned a sloop called the James, and he does show up in the records of both Charleston and New York as having called on those ports. Uh, captain James Beard actually died in Charleston, uh, most almost certainly of yellow fever, in 1711. And we know that he had a son. Unfortunately, the the records don't tell us what his son's name was. Now, when James Beard died in Charleston, he got sick and died so suddenly that he only had time to record a non-cupative will, which was a which was an oral testimony at his on his deathbed, and that was recorded into the records of South Carolina. 
and he said that he was bequeathing his earthly possessions to his wife and his son, but mm-hmm. unfortunately he didn't name his son. And I'm still searching for the, for any sort of documentation that that will prove or disprove that his son was in fact named Edward. Did you find that he owned property around Bath? Yes. James Beard owned a 400-acre plantation adjacent to Governor Eden's 400-acre plantation, and which was also uh, on the south side adjacent to customs collector Tobias Knight's plantation. So you have three plantations in a row owned by two men that are known to have had a, a very uh, close relationship with the pirate who became known as Blackbeard, and this merchant captain named James Beard, who had a son whose name we don't know. James Beard also had a daughter whose name happened to be Susanna. And Susanna married a man who owned a property. Well, actually, Susanna um, inherited her father's uh, 600 acres on the next river south of the Pamlico River, which is known as the Noose River. And there is a creek. uh, It's now today uh, a little southeast of Newburn, but there's a creek there called Beard's Creek. And Susanna married a man named Frank, last name Frank, so she became known as Susanna Beard Frank. And one of the, the more intriguing clues that I came across is that probably one of the most respected and esteemed historians of North Carolina uh, who taught at the University of North Carolina for many years uh, was a was a man named uh, William Powell or Bill Powell, and he wrote a, uh, a number of important books on uh, North Carolina place names. Uh, and he actually, back in the 1960s, said that Beards Creek was associated by the people who lived in the area with Blackbeard, um, not knowing that there was the possibility that the Susanna Beard, daughter of James Beard, and possibly the sister of Edward Beard, you know, was lived there uh, on that creek. It's not too far fetched to assume that the pirate, well, that the pirate uh, Blackbeard, knowing that he uh, had strayed into piracy and not wanting to besmirch the family name, and feeling like possibly he was the black sheep of the family, decided to invent the name Blackbeard to distract people from his true name. Would that be at least a good guess? Well, it's 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 more than a guess. I think it's it's a it's a reasonable hypothesis that's supported by really a significant amount of ev- uh, evidence. And I'll have to say that when I when when I published my book, I, I was, for lack of a better way to say it, I was attacked by uh, other historians, uh, some of them associated with the the state of North Carolina and its Department of Cultural Resources, and they said that this whole idea that Blackbeard. Ed, was Edward Beard was preposterous, but they were defending, you know, their own publications. So I, I did a lot more research. I, I was curious as to were were there any other people during Blackbeard's time who went by their surname uh, with uh, preceded by a color? And sure enough, there there was a, a a man who actually lived in Scotland whose name in Gaelic was Ruid McGregor, which was meant Red McGregor. And he was the son of a McGregor. And so the, the sons of men, uh, depending on the color of their hair, would often be called, you know, red or black. In this case of, of Red McGregor, everybody knows the name because he was also known as Rob Roy. And uh, and he was, you know, a Scottish cattle rustler who was known by his uh, friends and neighbors in Scotland as Red McGregor. And actually, there's also a clue in the series Outlander, which I've I've referred to at times speaking to audiences, uh, because uh, uh, I believe uh, uh, Jamie McGregor was referred to as Red Jamie or Red McGregor as well. So. It's, it's not preposterous that, that Edward Beard would have become known as Blackbeard. I'm sure it, it was kind of a double entendre. The, uh, it was kind of an inside joke that he, it was unusual that he grew, uh, had a beard. Uh, beards were not the fashion uh, during this time, and he was probably among the 400 men aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge the only one who had a beard. 
and there may have been a reason why he had that beard. And by the way, the there's um, there's only one firsthand account that describes Blackbeard's appearance, and it was by that same merchant captain that I had already mentioned, uh, Henry Bostock of the sloop Margaret that Blackbeard had uh, detained for eight hours on December 5th of 1717. In his, the deposition that Henry Bostock gave uh, after he was released, he sailed to the island of St. Christopher's and reported to the to the officials there and said, I've just been robbed by this pirate, you know, Edward Tatch. And he described this Edward Tatch as being a very a, a very tall, spare man who had a very black beard, which he wore very long. So that that's the entire physical description that we have of Blackbeard. We, I mean, he was tall, he was skinny, and he had a long black beard. Uh, you know, I find it rather it's rather humorous that there's there was a one of my predecessors uh as a historian writing a book on blackbeard a biography of blackbeard was the dean of the school of law at wake forest university who in 1974 published a book titled blackbeard a reappraisal of his life and times and in that book he wrote that he that blackbeard was about 38 to 40 years old of age about the time that he was killed and ever since, that was the very first time in history that any historian or writer ventured a guess as to how old Blackbeard was. But <laughs> 38 to 40 years old. Now, first of all, that is um, quite a bit older than what has been determined to be the median age of pirates during the Golden Age of Piracy, which is based on official records. We, we know that uh, the median age was about 26 or 27 years old. So a 38 to 40 year old man would have been quite old to be a pirate. So mm -hmm. I was curious how did how did Robert Lee come up with this estimation of Blackbeard's age? And you have to read the the end notes in his book to see what led him to believe that uh, that number. And in in the end notes, he said that he based his estimation of Blackbeard's age on pictures or images of Blackbeard that had been made a few years after his death. And the, and the specific one he refers to is the very famous picture of the pirate Blackbeard holding uh, a cutlass in one hand and with a brace of pistols. And everybody's seen this image. And unfortunately, though, what the author Robert Lee and all these other writers uh, have not told their readers is that every single image ever made of the pirate Blackbeard was was conceived and put to paper by artists who never laid eyes on the pirate at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the most famous one in the book General History of Pirates was made by an artist who lived in Oxford, England, and it was. And I jokingly tell folks I, he probably used his neighbor as a model <laughs> for Blackbeard. Yeah. Um, Nobody knows what Blackbeard looked like, and nevertheless, and there's another image of Blackbeard that shows Blackbeard. It's I call it the smoking ears Blackbeard. It's the it's the one. It's kind of a headshot of Blackbeard with the right. burning fuses and the smoke coming up, and he has these big, wide, glaring eyes, just bulging eyeballs. And so, uh, I find it humorous that numerous actors and reenactors and impersonators always depict Blackbeard with these big bulging eyeballs. Well, that's all based on a fictional image. It's, it's, uh, it's quite funny to think about. And, and this has been a lot of fun this far. I'm looking forward to part two. Right, and I'll, I'll have to say that in, in part two in particular, uh, you refer to him as Black Caesar, but it is, it is the, the, the black pirate named Caesar, but he really ultimately is the key to uh, proving uh, Blackbeard's origins and identity. So I'm really excited about being able to uh, talk about him. Coming next week, we'll take a deep dive into the last days of Blackbeard and his crew while continuing to unravel the myth that has grown up around Blackbeard. Here in Part 1, Kevin Duffus has built a pretty strong case on behalf of Blackbeard's real name being Beard, not Edward Teach, and that Blackbeard and most of his pirate crew were all from the area of Bath, North Carolina, not from England. 
I'm sure many of you were surprised to hear that Blackbird's term of piracy was less than two years, and that only one physical description of him was ever given. That's saying that he was tall, thin, and had a long black beard, and that was it. We'll have lots of questions for Kevin Duffus next week. Was it true that Blackbeard lit fuses in his beard to give himself a devilish appearance in order to frighten his quarry? Did Blackbeard's headless body really swim three laps around his boat after he was beheaded? What were his last words? Who was Israel Hands? What happened to Blackbeard's skull? Did a silversmith inscribe it? What happened to his crew? Were they all hung on Gallows Road in Williamsburg? Being a history researcher, you mentioned once that the spirit of the person whose grave you stepped in sort of guided you to find the real story. Were there other times the other side reached out to you? What are some of the legends and stories about relatives of Blackbeard or his crew, or his hidden treasure, are told around the Pemlico Sound and River area? These questions and many more, coming in Part 2, next week Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We always appreciate reviews for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. So if you have a chance, please stop and send us a review. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Our guest today has been Kevin Duffus, author of The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate. Everyone, stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.